Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It came to pass as the angels were going away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child, this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Let's just read verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. When you're familiar with a passage, and that certainly would count with this one, we have, we have read it over and over, certainly every Christmas, but, but even more than that. When you're familiar with a passage, it can rob you of wonderful riches if you're not careful. You can get so used to a verse or so used to a, um, to a passage that you, you, you mistakenly feel like you have mined all the riches out of it that there is to get. With the Word of God, that's never the case. There's always deeper to go. There's always more depths to be plumbed. Um, I, I don't, I'm not saying that I agree with this, but I, I was talking with somebody not too long ago, and they said this. They said, Andy, I've taken to reading other versions of Scripture because I've gotten so used to the one that I grew up using that I, I've started taking it for granted, and I needed a fresh look. I get what they're saying. Um, whatever, whatever your take is on that and whatever your position is on that, at the very least, we need to come to the Word of God with, with a, an on-purpose prayer, Lord, make it fresh to me. One of the prayers that I utter just about every time I read the Scriptures, if I think to, is out of the Psalms. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law, because there is plenty to behold. 
plenty to behold. And so I wanted to take some sections from this most familiar passage regarding Christmas. I want to ask God to remind us of some powerful principles from Bethlehem. Some powerful principles from Bethlehem. Gracious Father, would you help us now in these few minutes we have? May we just get exactly what you'd have for us tonight. Mark will be there beginning of the year. We'll come back to him. We're thankful for that study. But for tonight, our thoughts are turned towards Christmas, and I pray that you'd help us to to glean exactly what you have for us. Oh, may Jesus be lifted up in our time together tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things I want you to remember. If you're in the habit of jotting these down, feel free. Number one, God is sovereign in the details. God is sovereign in the details. Let's let's unpack that a little bit. Sovereign means he has absolute authority and control. Now, my friends that are reformed, that are you would some would call them Calvinists, they make much of the sovereignty of God. And and I agree with them that God is sovereign. We we need to be careful that we don't rob ourselves of good doctrine because we may not agree with a group of people on a given thing that they believe. The fact is, God is sovereign. Always has been, always will be. And he is sovereign in the details. There's nothing about your life of which God is not aware, and there's nothing about your life of which God is not involved. Now, that doesn't mean that he actively does everything, but he allows everything, and he is involved in everything. And we need to remember that. Verse number one, came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And you go all the way through verse number five, and you see a lot of names mentioned. There was indeed a Caesar Augustus. He did did indeed in the days of Cyrenius, governor of Syria, issue a tax. Some people call it a census. They were one and the same. It was a census for the purpose of taxation. When we have censuses here every four years, they say, well, it's for, it's for apportioning, you know, congressional districts. And that's true. They use it for that. But more than that, they want to know how many people to tax. Okay. Don't think for a second that's not in their thinking. We know historically that that took place. And by the way, everywhere the Bible mentions a historical detail, it has been proven to be true. And there are some things that are not yet proven to be true, but there has never been one thing the Bible has mentioned that somebody can offer incontrovertible proof that it's not true. For instance, as we, as we look at the, uh, you know, the, the empires that rose and fell, everything the Bible has to say about them lines up. The Bible's not a history book, but it's, it's correct in all matters of history that it mentions. God is sovereign in the details. 700 years before what we just read took place, a prophet uttered a prophecy, a prophet named Micah, and he said this, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah, and that's important because that distinguishes which Bethlehem. Did you know there's more than one Bethlehem? There is. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So Mary, when she finds out she's going to have Jesus, where is she? Nazareth. And 
then she goes to Judea to see Elizabeth and, and, and maybe a prophet that's watching that or somebody that studies prophecy saying, oh good, this is when it's going to happen. This is, why it's gonna, this is how it's going to take place. And then she goes back to Nazareth again. Wait a minute. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. What gets her there? Joseph and the fact that he has to go to Bethlehem. God was not in heaven saying, man, I hope something comes together to get them down to Bethlehem. No, he knew what was going to happen and even orchestrated what was going to happen. These circumstances were completely under God's control and they brought the Christ child to exactly the place he needed to be. Caesar Augustus thought he was in charge, but he wasn't. Cyrenius, governor of Syria, thought he was in charge. But he wasn't. Herod the Great thought he was in charge. But he wasn't. Respectfully, Governor Yunkin may think he's in charge. But he isn't. President Biden may think he's in charge. But he isn't. Vladimir Putin may think he's in charge. But he isn't. Um, uh, Kim Jong, is it Un or Il? Who's the Kim Jong right now? The, The crazy guy in North Korea. He thinks he's in charge. But he isn't. Oh, let's make it personal. You may think you're in charge. I may think I'm in charge. But we're not. God is always in charge. Beyond the circumstances, God was even in charge of the timing. He wasn't just in charge of what happened. He was in charge of when it happened. We've read this verse several times in this season. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that they might receive the adoption of sons. Can I give you a little so what just from this point? All right, God's sovereign in the details. What do I take from that? Here it is. You get frustrated over circumstances? Do you ever? I do. Do you get frustrated over the timing of some of these circumstances? I do. Does God sometimes not work quickly enough for you? Yeah. That's true for all of us. Remember, God is sovereign. And no matter what you're facing, he is sovereign and he is in control over the details. Now, that's not meant to be fatalistic. We just sit back and do nothing. Obviously, we have a role to play in all this, and we ought to do that which pleases God. But when our best efforts come up short, don't forget that God and God alone is sovereign in the details. Number two, a second principle we want to take from Bethlehem. He's sovereign in the details. Now, here's number two. Serving God doesn't eliminate hardship. It only magnifies the grace to endure it. Now, is God able to eliminate hardship? He is. And often, he does not. Look at verse 6. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Nothing, 
I repeat, nothing in Scripture suggests that Mary got a pass on anything. I'll bet being the mother of our Lord, I'll bet her delivery was just as smooth and easy. I doubt it. The Bible doesn't say that. It hurt like they all do. And in addition to that, it wasn't even in a nice environment. It was in a stable. And our little manger scenes, our little nativity scenes, they're a little too uh, clean. Where there are animals, there's evidence of animals. There is noise. There is dirt. I, I've told you before, I don't think they were the only family in this stable. If they were, then why did the angel go to the point to tell the shepherds which baby to look for? If there's only one baby there, it's pretty evident that's the baby. Not for nothing. What is it, 60 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem? 60 hard, rocky, uneven miles on a donkey? Now, ladies, those of you that have been with child and been through this blessed experience, when, when you were about to have your baby, were you excited about climbing up on a donkey and riding over rocky terrain? Can't imagine you were, but she did. In fact, when they go to the temple in Luke 2.34, Simeon prophesied something's exactly the opposite of that notion. Not that Mary would get a pass on anything. Listen to what he says. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, why, why, why do I bring this up? Because there are all kinds of Christians, I've been there too, y'all, that as soon as hardship enters their life, it blows them away. They're completely unprepared for it because, wait a minute, if I'm serving God, then everything's supposed to be sunshine and roses. Something's not right here. And yet Jesus and Paul, just to name two, said it would be like this. What did Jesus say? Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Paul was arguably the greatest Christian to ever walk the planet. Certainly top ten. So then... Paul must, like, like our friends on TV tell us sometimes, Paul must have had it easy. If he walked that closely with God, he must have had it easy. Well, let's see what he said. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one. 
Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And I love this verse 28. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. I've been through all this. Don't get me started on deacons. I'm kidding. Deacons are great. Boy, Paul had it easy, didn't he? What did he tell Timothy? The last letter he wrote, Yea, and all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. All right. So God, now, will sometimes God deliver us from hardships in his sovereign will? Sometimes he will. But God never promises exemption. But what he does promise is enhancement. One of the drills they use in football for running backs. I mean, ideally, a running back would love to be like Barry Sanders where he just eludes everybody. But your average running back, it's not that you elude people. It's that you run through them, especially if you're a fullback. And so they have this contraption that you, you take the ball and you run through that, and it's meant to create resistance that you break through. You don't expect to not have resistance. You expect to build up the wherewithal to break through it. Can I tell you, God doesn't promise you that you're not going to meet resistance, but he will give you the grace to break through it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. There's no temptation taking you, but such as a common demand. But God is faithful, and that's so important. How does this work? It works not because we're faithful. It works because God is faithful. But God is faithful who will not suffer, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but with, with the temptation also make a way to escape. Now, this, this makes us think that that means, oh, well, we're going to escape these hardships. No, escape here has the idea of escaping the, the, the bad consequences of that hardship because what does he say right after that? That ye may be able to bear it. Mary didn't have it easy. And doing right and serving God doesn't eliminate hardship. But it will magnify the grace to endure it. Whatever you're going through right now, God may choose not to take you away from the hardship or take the hardship away from you. But I promise you, like the song says, he giveth more grace. Number three. Third principle we want to take from Bethlehem tonight. All right, The first one. God is sovereign in the details. Number two, serving God doesn't eliminate hardship. It only magnifies the grace to endure it. Number three, waste no time following God's instructions. Delayed obedience is what? Disobedience. We, we, we've endeavored to teach our kids that. We're still working on it. Claire's doing pretty good. Her brother, hmm. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Verse 8. They're in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, 
The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, <coughs> excuse me, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It came to pass as the angels were going away from them into heaven. The shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. The actions that we see from the shepherds indicate that God had placed at least two distinct mandates on them. Number one, get in Jesus' presence. Get as close to him as you can. I take that from verse 15. Get to him. Get close to him. Number two, tell others about him. Get in his presence and tell others about him. Now, all of this, according to verse 16, was done how? With haste. They didn't waste time. They didn't delay. They obeyed. I don't think there's anybody in here that would say they don't want to be in the presence of God. And yet, we manage to find things that delay that endeavor. Yeah, I want to get in his word. Yeah, I want to spend time in prayer, and yet we don't make it the priority that it should be, and before long other things distract us and keep us away from him. And what have we done? We've delayed what we should be doing. We've wasted time in following God's instructions. Because would you agree that's a mandate for every Christian that's ever walked this planet, and that's to stay in the presence of God and tell other people about him? Is that not what what we're supposed to be doing? To stay in his presence, that's in the book and on your knees, and tell other people about him. And yet we find ourselves wasting time. Shepherds didn't. If you, if I, if we're not in the constant presence of God and telling others about him, here's the question, why not? What in the world, pray tell me, is more important than being in the presence of God and telling other people about him? What's more important? What is it? And if we're honest, the answer is nothing. The answer is nothing. Are there more things to glean from this? Oh, you bet. I wanted to stop at three tonight. Just something to kind of whet our appetite as we approach Christmas, as we approach our candlelight service, as we approach our, um, our Sunday morning Christmas Day service. It's important that we find principles to use, to apply. And God's given us three tonight. He's sovereign in the details. He's in control. Trust him. Trust him. Don't expect serving God to eliminate hardship. It won't. But it will give you the grace to deal with it. And then when God gives you instructions, waste no time following them. Some good principles. Would you agree?